Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about real-time payments with Bobby Caldwood. Welcome to the show, Bobby. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. So, Bobby, you are the founder of Evident Systems, which is a company working in the payments banking industry. Can you tell me a little bit more about what they do, what you do? Yeah, sure. So we help smaller banks and credit unions reassert ownership over their data and modernize their core systems. The banking industry in the United States in particular, the, the technology situation is pretty grim. <laughs> it's really old stuff, you know, mainframes from the 70s and, and all that. So I was working at Capital One for a lot of years before that, kind of saw the landscape and thought, you know what, I, I can help banks down market, modernize and sort of get control back of their data and their customers' data and, and be able to offer better products and better digital experiences to their customers. So that's really the goal is to help these banks kind of reassert ownership of that data so that they can provide these really great experiences to their customers so their customers can experience their money better. That's a, a nice goal to have. Could you tell us a little bit more about the banking system and structure in the US? Because it seems quite different to certainly in New Zealand and most other places I'm aware of where there tends to be you know, a small number, maybe five or six national banks, whereas in the US there's thousands of independent banks. Yeah, it's a very unique situation in the United States. In Canada, you have something like 17, I think. In Germany, there's you know, a handful to you know, maybe less than 20. In the United States, there's about 5,300 banks. Wow. And then you know, another you know, over 1,000 credit unions. I don't have the exact number on credit unions. That number's you know, a little misleading because you know, the 10 biggest banks, or I guess we'll call them the 25 biggest banks or so, have you know, 80% of the deposits, right? They have 80% right. of the deposit relationships. But the smaller banks in the United States play a really important function in business lending, especially local business lending. They do something like 70 to 80% of the business lending in the U.S. out of this tiny portion of the deposits, right? So it's an important part of the U.S. banking system. It's sort of this historical anomaly that we have, you know, all of these different banks, you know, during Westward expansion and all of that. Capital formation was really important uh, in order to facilitate trade, et cetera. And there are laws on the books in a lot of uh, U.S. states that prohibited branch banking. And right up until the 70s, in several U.S. states, the 1970s, branch banking was illegal in those states. So each physical location had to be a different bank holding company with different, wow. you know, with you know, regulator overseeing them and you know, specific capital ratio requirements and, and all of that you know, per what we would now call like bank branch. So it's a unique situation and it's created at once sort of a, a more chaotic banking situation, you know, where banks fail, you know, more frequently historically in the United States. But it's also a very robust banking system because there are so many players. If there's, you know, a problem or if there's some contagion or something, in many cases that can be contained, kind of like the uh, compartments on a ship, if it strikes an iceberg or something. Yeah. The idea is that the compartments on a ship are, are to sort of reduce the blast radius of that impact so it doesn't impact the whole system. Um, by having so many banks, uh, the U.S. banking system can adapt, theoretically. It's not born out in the last 25 years, I guess, but can adapt to the banking crisis and solve it while minimizing and localizing the uh, failures. So I can't imagine that all 5,300 of these banks are writing you know, custom bank software specifically for themselves. There must be, I assume, some sort of, you know, common platforms that at least the smaller ones would be able to use. So can you give us like an overview of like, what's the technology situation at, you know, a fairly high level? I don't know if, how doable that is for a bank, but what does the picture of banking technology look like? Sure. No, it's a great question. 
there's really three big, what we call core banking vendors, vendors who sell the banking core, which is like the core system of record, maintains accounts and transactions and balances and all that stuff, you know, kind of the, mm. the core of the bank. There's three of those vendors and they have, you know, the lion's share, I think above 80% of, of market share between the three of them, maybe be above 90% of market share between the three of them. And then there's a handful of sort of challengers who are trying to get a, a foothold in that market. So these three big vendors in many ways know the business of banking and certainly the technology of banking much better than the banks themselves in a lot of ways. So these three big vendors really own, you know, the banking technology space. And as a result, you know, a lot of the banking space, they're in a very advantageous position uh, with regard to their customers, the banks. And as a result, they've sort of got, uh, I just got to choose my words carefully here. They, <laughs> they have negotiated very aggressive contracts with respect to the banks. So in many cases, especially for smaller banks, the bigger banks still use these vendors. But they've got a little more leverage, you know, in the negotiation with these vendors and are able to do more things. One as a Capital One, we could we could ask for something from the vendor and be reasonably sure that the vendors would be, oh, yeah, okay, of course, you know, because we want you to renew with us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we're going to try to keep you happy, giant bank. But for the small banks, they really don't have very much leverage. So, you know, these seven-year contracts that renew every seven years, in many cases, the banks don't even have access to their own customer data. So... In many cases, they don't have technical access to it, but in some cases, they don't even have contractual access to this data. They have to ask the vendor nicely and pay extra money just to get at their customer's data for you know marketing purposes or for uh, data analytics or whatever to understand the behavior of their customers. So it's really an interesting situation where they, the banking vendors have a tremendous amount of power with respect to the banks themselves. Wow. And so... Capital One in particular is quite famous as a, a cloud-first or cloud-native bank now. But what about the rest of the industry? Where's sort of cloud versus on-premise or some sort of hybrid system, particularly the system of record? Where does that tend to live? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, because these core vendors have such a huge market share, they've been very, very slow to innovate and slow to move to new platforms. Basically, only one of the three has even any semblance of an API or API strategy out in front of these cores to wow. provide a consistent, you know, developer experience of getting access at these cores. The other ones, you know, we're still talking about, you know, crusty old mainframes from the seventies written, in, you know, systematics and COBOL and, and, you know, some of these really old languages, super hard to find COBOL programmers now. Right. And <laughs> they're charge you, you know, $500 an hour for the privilege of writing this language that <laughs> nobody really understands. Right. So it, it's, it is very difficult in some cases to interact with these core systems. And, you know, there's not because of this extremely advantageous market position they have, there's not very much pressure on them to modernize. Now, that being said, there are some really great vendors, you know, kind of that 10%, there's these challenger cores uh, that are basically all cloud-based. Um, you've got companies like Finzact, Finastra, uh, I think to a lesser extent, Mambo, or Mambu, I think it's called Mambu, a handful of others that are trying to be a cloud-native core and trying to get people, you know, these, these banks in the U.S. to switch over to these cloud-based cores. There's also um, some international companies. Mambu, as I mentioned, is, is, is a European company. There's another company called, uh, oh no, the name just escaped me. Uh, it, it'll come back to me. But there, there's another cloud vendor core banking vendor that has some cloud capabilities they can run their stuff in AWS that are trying to penetrate the US market a little bit. They have a you know large market share internationally but but not very much presence in the United States. 
there are attempts, you know, to kind of break the stranglehold that these three vendors have on the market. And I think we'll see over the next five to 10 years, some of that bear out. We're in conversations right now with a couple of our customer banks that are sort of in the middle of what they call a core conversion, uh, which can be a very traumatic <laughs> and painful experience for a bank, you know, migrating their data from this old, you know, say, COBOL mainframe over into a new a new cloud-based core. So that is a very disruptive and, and semi-traumatic experience for a bank, especially a small bank with not a, a ton of development resources. So. Actually, that's another question. So typically these smaller banks, do they have like developers or do they just contract to these large providers for like any software development work they need? Yeah, for the most part, they've almost entirely outsourced their whole technology operations to these vendors. So they they really rely on the vendors to not only provide them core banking infrastructure, you know, just maintaining transactions and deposits and, and all of that, but also all of these sort of vertically integrated add-ons that kind of connect into that course, you know, for credit card payments and debit card payments and what we call ACH transfers, which is kind of the non-real-time batch-oriented way that most people move money in the United States right now. All of that is also provided by these same vendors. So once they have you as a core customer, that they really want you to use their whole integrated, you know, vertically integrated stack of banking solutions. You know, and that includes things all the way out to like the uh, ATM machines and the teller systems in the bank branches and the customer support systems in the call centers. All of that extra stuff around the core, these core vendors also want to sell you. There have been some really great vendors who have broken into that space and, and disrupted that a little bit, especially on the online banking and mobile banking side. Uh, there's some really great vendors who have said, you know, hey, we can come in and integrate with these cores and you don't have to buy whoever's off the shelf product. You, you can use our product and we'll integrate with their core. So th- there is some disruption there, especially on the mobile and internet banking side, but uh, it's not great. And it hasn't penetrated kind of all the way to the core yet. Uh, the vendor that I, I couldn't think of was uh, Temenos. They're uh, the global leading banking provider, but they don't have very much uh, market share in the US. They're, they're trying to break in with their uh, cloud-based core system. Right. That's a really good overview of kind of the environment that you're you know, selling into and working into. And so what is it that you're specifically providing these banks? Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned ACH earlier. ACH is a, is a payment system you know, that allows banks to move money between them. And it's old. It's about 40 years old. And uh, it was sort of originally crafted and, and created by a company called the Clearinghouse. And they operate, they still operate a large segment of the ACH network now. And the Clearinghouse is a, a consortium. It's, I think it's a not-for-profit not consortium of the 25 largest banks, mostly based in New York. And the Clearinghouse, you know, seeing the, the ACH system start to show its age a little bit and you know, the, the reality for most U.S. banking customers is in order to move money between my checking account that I have with Bank A to my savings account that I have with Bank B, it takes three or four days for that, for that money to move. Mm. And in this era of instant expectations where I can download the latest movie right now to my mobile phone, <laughs> uh, waiting three days for a payment to clear seems, seems old and seems kind of old fashioned. You know, with these payments, there's, you know, they all have to go through the Fed uh, banking system, right? So there's this big clearing process that, that takes a while to do. And it's also all batch oriented. So you really don't, they don't even really start moving the money until the end of the day when they do the kind of their their nightly batch process of, of these payments. So seeing that, the, the clearinghouse devised a new real-time payment system. And they're rolling it out now. They've been working on it for you know, a number of years. They've been rolling it out for the past about two years. 
And they're at the point now where about 50% of the deposit accounts in the U.S., you know, again, from these 25 largest banks that comprise the clearinghouse, are live on real-time payments, either in a send-receive mode or just a receive-only mode. They're in one way or another live on this new real-time payments platform and payment rails, which is great. But the smaller banks, you know, you've got this long, long, long tail of, you know, 5,000 plus, you know, regional and, and community banks, and not to mention credit unions, they're not there yet. And they're not on these payment rails yet. So we've partnered with the clearinghouse and the clearinghouse, you know, is open to partnerships with companies like Evidence Systems to help these smaller banks and credit unions get onto the real-time payments network. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of buzz in the U.S. about real-time payment systems. Uh, the real-time payments platform from the clearinghouse is sort of the private sector answer to that. Some of the smaller banks and credit unions doubting that they'd be able to participate in this system that was basically pioneered by the biggest banks. They have petitioned the U.S. Federal Reserve System to come up with public sector real-time payments infrastructure. So now the Federal Reserve just about a month ago announced that they, they have this, uh, this program called FedNow, which is scheduled to sort of be on released or, or started to roll out in 2023. And the FedNow system is, is going to be kind of this public sector real-time payments system. People kind of joke, you know, FedNow but it's 2023, maybe it's more like that later. <laughs> but my suspicion, just sitting here, you know, you have to divide by my opinion a little bit because we are partnered with the Clearinghouse and they've been excellent partners to work with. But my suspicion is if enough people adopt the real-time payments network, the private sector one offered by the Clearinghouse, I don't think the Fed will even bother come 2023 to roll this thing out because there will be sort of that tipping point of adoption among the, uh, among the banks. So that's our goal. And uh, the product that we've made that we just launched at the Finnovate conference in New York, it's a kind of the big fintech uh, conference in the United States. Last week at Finnovate, we demoed our capability and what we're offering to banks, you know, the smaller banks in particular is we'll do all the heavy lifting, we'll host the hardware routers and deal with all the encryption and the messaging protocol, et cetera, for the real-time payments. And then we'll connect into your core system. So we'll do the core integration as well so that we can route transactions from the real-time payments network directly into your core and we have kind of a software as a service experience, you know, and platform for these banks to get up and running on the real-time payments network very quickly uh, with us as their third-party service provider. So we have, you know, this dashboard that'll take them all the way through the workflow of getting onto the network, signing the necessary documents, providing the necessary configuration details for the um, real-time payments network, the necessary configuration details for their core system of records so we can connect to their core and then you know, activate the, uh, the, uh, interact the integration so that transactions are flowing from the network into their core uh, through our rails. So that's kind of the, the service that we're offering is, is this really seamless and easy way for these smaller banks who don't have development resources, who might not have project management resources to devote to this you know, big integration. They can do it in a very self-service way via our, via our platform. I imagine either now or soon have created adapters for these big three core systems so that when a bank comes to you with whatever those systems are, they can say, you can say, oh yeah, we already know how to, to work with them. So we can just drop in the adapter for that system. Is that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we've, we've got some screens in our, in our online tool where you, you know, with the dropdown menu, you pick the core that you want to support <laughs> and then fill out kind of a form basically. And that, that gives us enough information to be able to integrate for the most part. So as I mentioned, one of the three 
big core vendors has an API and an API strategy. That's Jack Henry. Jack Henry is, in my view, by far the best of the three big vendors in terms of how they treat their banks, in terms of um, trying to be forward thinking and having you know this, this API strategy. So we're targeting Jack Henry banks first. Okay. Jack Henry also has a credit union side called Scimitar, and that's kind of their uh, their credit union product. So Jack Henry Banking on one side, Jack Henry Scimitar on the other side. That gives us a significant percentage of the banks and credit unions in the U.S. Uh, so we're targeting those cores first, and then later we'll target some of the other vendors who don't who aren't as easy to integrate with and who don't have quite the API strategy and hosted cloud based vision that, that Jack Henry does. We partnered with Jack Henry and Scimitar. They've also been really great to work with. So we have partnerships, you know, on the clearinghouse side and partnerships on some of the core banking side. And those partnerships are part of what helps us provide value to these banks is just as you said, hey, we've already written this core connector, you know, to Jack Henry. So you don't have to write that. Your software engineers don't have to take months and months and months to get that integration right. We've done it once and we can scale that to all of our Jack Henry banking customers. So can you tell us a little bit more about the architecture of this system that you built. Yeah. Uh, you're you're quite famous for your sort of Kafka doing stuff with Kafka, so I'm guessing there's Kafka involved in there somewhere. But what else? What does it look like? Yeah, there is. And in fact, speaking of partnerships, we are partnered with Confluent. They've been really excellent to work with. We've partnered with them in some of our professional services work, as well as uh, we're using the Confluent cloud to host our Kafka topics, basically. So we are using Kafka. Um, that's part of our so technical special sauce, this whole problem of routing transactions that are arriving in real time on this real-time payment system, it's all message-driven. The whole protocol on the network is message-driven. So it lends itself really well to this event-driven architecture. And, and so Kafka is you know, certainly a part of our strategy there. It you know, really lends itself well to this event-driven uh, kind of perspective and way of thinking about things. But even more than that, we use an event-driven architecture throughout our product. So it's not just the message routing piece, but the whole business process of onboarding and all of that, the whole customer experience, the whole customer lifecycle is all managed via an event-driven sort of log-centric system. So yeah, it's all CQRS and event sourcing down at the bottom. We're using Reframe on the front end. We love Reframe. It's been fantastic. So we're using Reframe with Bulma, which is a, a UI yep. uh, kind of CSS library. So we're using Bulma and Reframe on the front end. We're using uh, GraphQL with Regraph, so we get you know events that can be sort of pumped forward into the browser as well to make the browser kind of a full participant in this distributed system. So the whole architecture really lends itself well to this event-driven way of, of looking at the world. So from the UI all the way back to our API layer, all the way back to our message routing and side-affecting stuff, it's all driven via this event-driven mechanism. Nice. And you mentioned mainframes uh, earlier. Is your system talking directly to mainframes or is there, I guess they're going through an API layer at the moment? Yeah, at the moment we're going through an API layer and we're sort of being selective in our core integrations at this point, looking for cores that really do have a robust API surface that we can use. That's sort of the edge of our system in a lot of ways. Like we we're event driven right up to the point where we side effect out to, you know, calling their web service and, you know, making sure that that happens the way it ought to. So that layer needs to be really robust and make sure that we understand when and how it fails so that we can report back to the user that, hey, you had this transaction, but it didn't go through because something happened with the core or whatever. 
customers. So that's really the tricky bit, you know, managing those side effects at the edge or is sort of the tricky part of it. So the last thing we want to do at this point is inject a mainframe integration right there. <laughs> we prefer we prefer to deal with a uh, with an API, you know, for the time being. I think we will get to the point, you know, eventually when we start to support those other two big core vendors that I mentioned, at that point, we'll basically have to drop down and start talking to mainframes. So. Okay. <laughs> And you mentioned CQRS and event sourcing. And so for people who aren't familiar with those terms, what are they? Yeah, sure. So event sourcing is a, a way of reasoning about the state of your system in terms of the events that happen in your system. So if you if you think of your maybe modeling a chess game in software, you can either model that chess board by destructively mutating the board every time someone moves a piece, or you can say, okay, I know the initial state of a chess board and if I store every move in a, basically a log of events, I can trivially compute what the current state is, but I also have the whole history of the game, which you don't have if you just sort of destructively mutate the board every time someone moves it, right? So you can't do any follow-up analysis on how this game went versus another game or, hey, in this situation across you know all the chess games that have ever been played in our system, what do people tend to do? in this situation versus what computers tend to do in the situation, right? Which moves they pick. So you can't do any of that type of analysis unless you have stored the state of your system in terms of the events that led to that state. So that's all events, event sourcing is, is just storing all of the things that happen, all the actions that happen within your system and deriving your state from those actions. So that's event sourcing. CQRS sort of naturally blends with that event sourcing outlook. CQRS stands for command query responsibility segregation. And it simply means splitting out the action or writing side of your of your application from the perception or the read side of your application. So actions come in one way via commands. You say, hey, move this piece for me, please. And then the computer says, okay, you want me to move this piece for you, but I'm going to make sure that that's a legal move first. And I'm going to do some you know kind of analysis on this. If I think it's an okay thing to do, I'll emit an event to the event log saying, hey, this piece moved from here to there. And then after that event happens, I build my read model of the board state. And then that read model can be queried through a separate path kind of on my front end system or in my API or whatever. I can read the read model, but these commands come in via a separate path and are written as events first you know, before they can be queried as a read model. So there's some eventual consistency sort of implied in this. There's some asynchrony implied in this combination of CQRS and event sourcing, but it's, it's a very powerful way of reasoning about your system because you're not, you're not talking about destructively mutating things. You're not talking about trying to understand the current state of the system. You're just saying, hey, let's just write down everything that happens and we'll figure out after the fact, you know, what that means for, for the state of the system. Or for different analyses, right? If I'm not worried about current state or if I, you know, but instead I'm a, a marketer in this organization, I can use the same event data for some marketing purpose. Or if I'm an auditor, you know, in a financial use case, that's important. I can observe the events, not so that I can compute current state of your system, but so that I can make sure that you're complying with, you know, various regulations and so forth around lending or around deposit calculations or balance calculations, et cetera. So by storing your events First is your sort of first class concern. Everyone in your organization, not only the software engineers that are building kind of the transaction processing part of your application, but also your marketing people and your data scientists and your auditors and your operations team, they're all kind of singing from the same sheet of music. They can all read or observe this event log 
and build whatever view of state makes sense for their use case. So that is a, a really good description of yeah, of secure systems. And I've I, we in fact I talked with you several years ago about doing this uh, doing this when I was working at a company and we were pretty small and we investigated it pretty hard and in the end we found event sourcing, at least for us in our domain, was there was a bit too much overhead there or it didn't I don't know, we thought pretty hard about it, but there were some issues around data modeling and migration and the eventual consistency and stuff, which which made it more difficult. Where are kind of the places where it works best and what are kind of things you've seen that make these kinds of transformations most successful? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, you know, like any engineering tool, it's not always the right answer and it's uh, it's good to understand kind of the problems where it's a good fit. Um, right now we're working with, uh, on a professional services basis, so this is separate from our, our product that we just launched last week, mm-hmm. um, but in our professional services work, we're working with a very large U.S. tax preparation company and their environment is such that, you know, these tax events happen and each tax return is, is important on its own from a customer servicing perspective. But inevitably, somebody in this very large organization is going to want to sort of aggregate that data and see trends and see you know, different views of this mm-hmm. for different business purposes. So in that type of environment where you are a little bit larger, where somebody else in your organization is going to want to observe the same business process but derive different conclusions from it than you might, you know, for your transaction right. processing or customer servicing perspective. In those situations, it's really valuable because otherwise you're left to just like ETL out of the <laughs> transaction processing database and try to put it in an analytics environment to try to derive insight from these events. But at that point, you've lost data, right? There's lots of assumptions that are made by the software engineers in the transaction processing world about how the data should be shaped and all this. So, so what you're really getting is just sort of this pre-digested, pre-chewed data, a lot of which have been lost because you don't have the original events that led to this data. And then you're trying to do analyses off of that after some you know, extract, transform, load process, which is, which is not great. So if you're in a world where someone else wants to see this data for something, in addition to just your transaction processing world, I would recommend this sort of event sourcing model. It is harder for the software engineers, right? The software engineers have to basically put themselves in the shoes of everyone else in the organization and do a little extra work to consume this data. But it really does level the playing field. It it puts, you know, these analytic use cases and audit use cases and security analysis use cases, it puts them all on an equal footing with software engineers. Uh, Everyone's singing from the same sheet of music, which is basically the stream of events. So yeah, it implies a little more work for the software engineers, but a lot less work um, for everyone else who wants to get at this data. So, you know, if you're a little startup or if you're you know, a small company that just has this one application, it might not be worth the effort, honestly. But if you find yourself in sort of an enterprise or, or large company setting, I, I would definitely advocate for building your APIs out of a log of business events, building your systems out of a log of business events and have the business events be the, the prime mover and the database stuff can derive, you know, kind of from that. Nice. And you've given several good talks about this, uh, in particular one called Commander Better Distributed Application Through CQRS and Event Sourcing, which is you know, about a, a system you built demonstrating these in Clojure, which you know I've, I've looked at pretty heavily and yeah. watched the video and the, the sample application. So that's a great place for people to go. Thank you. Yeah, I, I've, I've evolved a little bit from Commander. Mm-hmm. In Commander, I, I sort of advocated for two different logs. There's sort of this command log and then this event log and some intervening processing there. 
especially when working with this large U.S. tax preparation firm, we found that that extra step of writing down the commands separately from the event, it ended up being too hard. And, and uh, you know, like you found, it sounds like that extra step, you know, makes it really hard to coordinate if you do need to simulate synchrony kind of on, on the API level. It just becomes an extra step that you don't derive much value from. Right. Now I'm more advocating what, uh, you know, doing the command processing in the API. Um, you know, so you've got your read model there that you've been building up from prior events. You know, when the command comes in from the API, say it's a post, you know, or something, then you can do your command processing, decide, you know, okay, is this something we want to commit to? If not, I'll just return out to the user and say, sorry, you know, bad request or whatever. But if it is something that I want to commit to, then I emit an event directly to the event log. So I've taken out kind of that that idea of a command log. I don't think it's a good idea anymore. Okay. Uh, instead, with that event that you emit to the event log, you can just include the the original command body, right, the post body as a field or as metadata on that event. So you can kind of see, here's the command that came in and here's the event that we emitted. There's, you know, that relationship is still stored on the event log, but you don't have this whole separate place, this, you know, this things can get out of order between the commands and the events and all that stuff. So I have evolved a little on that. And that process of you know writing APIs this way, where you do the command processing and then emit events, asynchronously aggregating those events into a read model and then you know servicing the queries from that read model, that's worked really, really well at this large US uh, tax preparation firm. Uh, they're really happy with it. They've been building uh, APIs that way for, for about uh, four or five months while we've been engaged with them and, and they love it so far. So. Can you talk a little bit about the different read models and ways that you build up this information then? Yeah. So this is really kind of the whole special sauce of this. <laughs> it's all about, you know, the command processing is important and, you know, making sure that you uh, assert your invariants and your business logic and so, and so forth so that the event log stays clean and that you've only got, you know, semantically logical and meaningful events in the event log. That's really important. But then the other side of this is aggregating those events into usable read models. There's a really great technique. I, I don't want to ruin, don't want to misspell his name, so I'm looking it up real quick. But it's called event modeling by Adam. Oh man, I'm gonna mess up his name. I'm not gonna say his name until I can find it. But uh, th there's a technique called event modeling, eventmodeling.org. Super great. That's all about how to model systems like this. So before you even write a line of code using event modeling, which is sort of like event storming in some ways, uh, very similar to event storming, but slightly simplified. So there's really only sort of four different constructs. <laughs> you've got APIs or UIs out in front, and then you've got commands, you have events, and then you have read models. So those are the only four constructs in this whole kind of event modeling exercise that you do. Adam Dimitruk, he's a, a Canadian. He was partnered with Greg Young sort of at the beginning, at, at the very founding of CQRS and event sourcing. Greg Young is kind of the, the father of, of CQRS and event sourcing. And Adam works with Greg on this event modeling. Really, really great approach to modeling your business domain, modeling the problem you're trying to solve. And it does everything from kind of the user level interactions, like you might have in a design thinking exercise, but all the way back down into the commands and events and so forth that the backend engineers need in order to maintain state consistently. So event modeling is really great. And aggregating these events into a read model is, is sort of like the main point of some of these backend services. So we use Kafka Streams, Kafka Streams library to do that. We just sort of observe events as they come through. The Kafka Streams job aggregates those events and then emits basically current state 
of the business domain. You know, so it's, maybe it's a customer, maybe it's a, you know, whatever your business entity is, the Kafka Stream job processes one or more event topics. And then in response to these events as they come in, aggregates and emits a current state snapshot of these uh, business domain entities as read models. So now you have a topic that each record on the on the Kafka topic is a point in time snapshot of the state of that thing, which is you know very datomic-y in some ways. The new database crux, yeah, by the uh, the Juxt guys follows sort of a very very similar kind of perspective, but it's all about consuming, you know, digesting events and emitting read models, you know, point in time read models that allows you to do point in time querying of your system. So you can say, okay, as of event number one, two, three, four, what did the state of the system look like? And using Kafka streams, you have this sort of direct mapping that's visible in code. It's visible on the topics themselves of like, you know, as of this event, here's what the customer record looked like. You know, here's the changes that we made to the customer record. And what's really neat about that is that Again, that's what the software engineers care about for the purposes of transaction processing and, and building your APIs and keeping the state consistent in your APIs. But the same technique can be used by someone in a marketing use case, observing the same stream of events, consuming them in a Kafka streams job or maybe a KSQL query or something, and then emitting a different view of state onto some other topic that's useful just from a marketing or a machine learning or whatever perspective. You can apply the same technique and, and the same engineering skills to both both ways of thinking nice and do you use a schema registry for these events or how do you kind of keep things straight yeah so so it depends with our big professional services customers we do we use um, schema registry and kind of the full confluent stack because they're mostly object-oriented programmers we're writing in java and kotlin and c-sharp and things so Having that idea of like, okay, what is my object is very useful to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. When I'm writing systems, you know, myself, like in, in my product, I tend to just use Freshen. I serialize to Freshen in Kafka and then deserialize from Freshen. And, you know, look, maps go in, maps come out. It's, it's great for a closure developer because you don't have to worry <laughs> about, you know, this this object mapping stuff and, and all of that that, that you have to with, with Avro and, and friends. So for my money, I, you know, I like that more functional approach and, and just dealing with, with serialized maps and records and so forth. Uh, in, in Freshen, but you, you know, you don't have to use Freshen. You could use any of the really great serialization things we have in Closure for uh, for writing that stuff down as bytes, and then then reading it back in as as Closure data structures. Great. So you use Closure in your own system, and maybe you get to use it in professional services if you're lucky. Yeah, I'm not sure. But how does Closure kind of help you in in what you're doing? You already mentioned you know, but um, maps in, maps out. But what else is yeah, that's great. The other thing that we've been doing with great success is using Kafka streams uh, in a very closure idiomatic way. So when you write, you know, I had to write a bunch of Kafka streams jobs in Kotlin, which was, you know, it was fine, <laughs> but it wasn't closure. It made me sad. And in Kotlin, you know, you do have to do this, you know, mapping of Avro records onto Kotlin data classes and doing a lot of object accessor stuff. And and you also have to use the case streams high level API, you know, so calling dot mm-hmm. map and dot, you know, aggregate and dot flat map and all that stuff on the K streams builder. Yep. And that's fine, but hey, we've already solved that problem in closure, right? We've got transducers where we can say, <laughs> here's what I want the computational pipeline to be. And, and it's sort of agnostic to sources and destinations where these elements come from. So using transducers has been really great from a 
Kafka Streams perspective, I, I think it's really a unique advantage that Kafka programmers or that the closure programmers have when working with Kafka is that they they can use transducers and they can test the transducers using just normal closure collections. You know, so at test time, it's super easy to understand and reason about your, your computational pipeline. And then when it comes time to operationalize it, you just, you know, hook uh, one or more Kafka topics as the inputs and one or more Kafka topics as the outputs and, and you know, you're off to the races. So it, it's, it's really easy to reason about other languages. You have to build these really complex and kind of kludgy test harnesses where you're spinning up a topology test driver in, in the Kafka world, building the topology and then driving it via this topology test driver. But that's a different thing from using it operationally when you're actually using the Kafka Streams job. So I don't know, it becomes hard. It becomes really hard to do that. So I prefer using transducers. It's just really nice. And then, like I said, the uh, the ability not to have to worry about object relational mapping, you know, or deserializing onto an object. I can just deserialize into a record, which you know, everyone's really comfortable using. Yep. Closure also has some really, really great libraries for interacting with Kafka. We've got Jackdaw by the folks from Funding Circle. Mm-hmm. Relatively recent work, but it uses all of the kind of Closure 110 Datafy stuff, and they've got a bunch of specs in there for interacting with the Kafka Java APIs, including Kafka Streams. So that library has been really great to work with. And then Willa, which is also, I think, from someone who works at Funding Circle. I'm not exactly sure of kind of the, the etymology there, but Willa is a way of declaratively specifying Kafka Streams topologies just using closure data structures. So Ooh. yeah, no, it, it's pretty neat. It's similar to Onyx. Onyx, yeah. Very, very similar to Onyx in its sort of specification of the topology. I love Onyx. Michael's a, a good friend of mine. Michael Dragalis is a friend of mine and uh, love that concept. Willa is sort of that idea applied to specifically Kafka streams. So we're using that. We're very happy with that as well. You're using Clojure. So are you looking to hire more Clojure developers to join you? We are. Thank you for asking. We've got a, a great team already. Uh, it's myself and three other engineers, you know, kind of senior Clojure engineers. We are looking to hire very soon. We're looking for, obviously, always, we're looking for really great Clojure and Clojure script developers. But we're also looking for really, really sharp security and operations people, people who can help us, you know, operate our SaaS in a regulated environment, in financial services so yeah, looking for security and operations folks. And then we're also looking for someone to build out our customer support practice. So people who are really passionate about customer service and support, we're looking for uh, for people like that as well. Excellent. And if uh, someone fits those descriptions, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, you can um, contact info at evidencesystems.com. That's probably the best way. Or you can always reach out directly to me, bobby at evidencesystems.com. Uh, feel free to reach out directly to me. Excellent. And are these jobs remote or localized to a particular area? Where can people be to apply? Yeah, uh, we're, we're definitely open to remote. Our engineering team at this point is is 100% remote, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but uh, we're trying to build especially our uh, operations and customer support capabilities in Utah County area. There's an area called the, they're starting to call the Silicon Slopes. Uh, it's Lehigh Highland, uh, American Fork, Utah. There's really great venture capital here. Adobe has a huge headquarters here, a bunch of really great, actually, fintech startups right here in kind of the Utah Valley area. So two great universities, or three great universities, uh, University of Utah, Brigham Young University, and uh, Utah Valley University are all within a stone's throw. So we've got a lot of good talent, you know, young talent coming out every year. So this is where we would like to build kind of the core of our 
uh, in particular our operations and customer support capabilities, but closure engineers, uh, we're willing to hire kind of wherever you are. Excellent. And has Evidence Systems raised venture capital then? You're just a privately held company? Yeah, great question. So we, uh, we have a board of three advisors, um, two of whom are partners in a venture capital fund, and we are very confident that we'll be able to raise the money when we need it. I see. At this point, we're, we're trying to bootstrap. We're uh, looking for customers more than we are courting uh, venture capitalists. So customers first, and then uh, you know, as we have proven the, the business model and have you know, 10 to 20 customers, I think at that point, we'll raise some money. But up to this point, we've we've sort of bootstrapped ourselves on professional services and uh, you know small friends and family kind of investments. So we've got capital, and we're you know got everything. We've got revenue, and we've got kind of the raw materials we need. I think at this scale, but uh, yeah, we, we will I think seek for from our network um, people who have already expressed interest in, in investing us in, investing in us when the time comes. Well, that sounds like a very strong position to be in then. Yeah, we're pleased. We're very excited with how the uh, the launch went last week. Um, we will have the video from our Finnovate demo like any day now. They, they said that they'd try to have it to us uh, this week. So maybe in a follow up, I, I'll, I'll send you the link to that. You can include it in the podcast. But there's it's a seven minute video. Uh, the Finnovate format is really intense. It's just back to back to back seven minute demos. No slides, no pre canned videos. You have to be showing real stuff. Um, so it, it's a really intense show. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Uh, you know, they'll gong you, and, and you know, if you go over time, they'll cut the lights. You know, ring a gong, and then bring up the lights on the other side of the stage, and so the next person goes. I mean, it's like really intense, but it was a lot of fun. And, and in that setting, we actually had the clearinghouse. Our partner Keith from the clearinghouse was on stage with us. He introduced us. It, I, I think we we showed really well that that show. So. Great. All right. Well, I'll definitely put that in the show notes and yeah, looking forward to watching it. All right. All right. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Really appreciate it.